Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. My pyramid has always been flipped on. Support people, give them the development they need, empower them to make decisions, let them know you're there to really support them. And as a result of that, the numbers come by people knowing that they're supported and they're getting everything they need to be the best they can possibly be. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to On Target this week. Today, I'll be talking to Scott Bond about developing and nurturing leadership talent. A former senior director of Zillow and current vice president at Property Finder, Scott believes his truest accomplishment can't necessarily be defined by metrics or revenue numbers alone, but by leading teams with trust, empathy, and respect. And on that note, let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right in. Scott, welcome to On Target. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Now, Scott, you and your teams have elevator pitches for your product services and solutions day in, day out. So if you had to have one for yourself in 30 seconds or less, give us your elevator pitch. Yeah. So my quick elevator pitch is, you know, I'm a 16, 17 year uh, sales leader at this point, uh, who's had the privilege to work across the United States and now across the Middle East. You know, my focus is really on developing people and leading through transparency and trust. And, you know, for me, it, it's all about the people development because I truly believe that great organizations are only great as a result of the people that they put in them. Um, and developing those people is crucial. So, uh, yeah, that's a little, little quick story on me and, and how I lead. Love it. Well, you've got an incredible story, at least if your LinkedIn is something to go by, Scott. So we would be doing an injustice not to spend a bit of time on some of the things you've called out there. One of the first things is you mentioned the fact that you were you were flipping video games in your neighborhood at eight years old. And then you ended up getting into leadership and, and, and obviously you've had a great career since then. So just talk to us a bit about your story back when you were in that neighborhood and how your, your career and story started to evolve. Well, you know, it's really funny because I never saw myself in sales and I, you know, I went to college. I kind of went to traditional route, went to college. I actually thought I was going to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be on ESPN back in the day and be a, you know, a sports announcer and then uh, ended up, you know, graduating with that degree, got into marketing. And then I met a mentor who said to me, you know, Scott, you need to be in sales. And it was interesting how it was so clear to him that sales was really my path. When I'd been doing sales really all my life, I was, as I mentioned, I was flipping video games at eight years old. I was selling stuff on eBay when I was in high school, back when eBay first got started. Um, I was always finding ways to sell stuff and kind of make money along the way. But I never really saw sales for myself until I met a mentor who said, Scott, that's the route you need to go. And so I believed that mentor. I listened and I jumped into sales from there. And it really has kicked off this you know, 17, 18-year career in sales most of which has been in sales leadership. But you know, for me, it, it's interesting because I think we don't always see our career path. We don't always see maybe what's next. But when you surround yourself with mentors or really smarter people than you, uh, you get a chance to really kind of see this angle of who you could become. And from there, I you know really have, have been able to to blossom my career. I spent you know ten years in the media business at NBC and CBS television stations. And then jumped into the real estate side of the business with Zillow and now Property Finder. 
So I've been very blessed. I've been very fortunate, but uh, my recommendation to people is definitely find those mentors in your life because you never know where you can go or what superpowers you, you, you may have as a result of it. Well, it's so great that that mentor saw what they saw in you because look how things have, have panned out <laughs> since then. Something I would like to unpack with you on that is one of the things you mentioned actually on your profile is that sales and people have always been in my blood. And so I'd like to understand for you, even though this mentor saw what they saw in you, there's something that's compelled you to say that this has always been in your blood. So talk to us about how you identified that. One of the things I tell people is you have to find this thing that's your passion. And you know, for me, I was I was very fortunate to be able to find that early on. I found that I love people. I love talking to people. I love interacting with people. I love the thrill of the deal. I love you know the thrill of being able to make some money. That all goes into this world of sales, right? But at the end of the day, you have to also really enjoy the human connection. So early in my career, I also saw an opportunity to make an impact on people, which is why I got into leadership. So I kind of had this opportunity to start in sales, understand sales, understand that world, understand connecting with customers, being around people, hitting targets, making money, and then to be able to then jump into leadership at an early age. I think it was 23, 24 at the time when I jumped into leadership, which I was just a baby, you know, looking back on it. Uh, I was managing people who had more experience in the industry than I had years on the earth. But, you know, for me, it was always just about, you know, if I can make an impact on somebody and help them in their career, then, you know, I'm doing my job. And I realized the privilege that I have to have been able to have found that career early on and find that love because a lot of people are still into their 30s and even early 40s and still trying to figure out kind of what they want to do with their life and what they want to do with their career. And I feel like I was very blessed to to kind of find that, you know, early on and really kind of find that magic that I I think a lot of people are often looking for. But, you know, again, I think it goes back to what do you love? What excites you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And for me, it was combining this passion of helping people, whether it's customers or the team, to win, to succeed, make more money, achieve targets, grow, develop. And blending that together across my career over the last, you know, however many years has really been a blessing, I, I, I think. You've spoken a lot about people, and that really stands out in, in the way that you talk and the passion that you have when you just talk about this premise of developing talent. And as mentioned, you, you got into it at quite a young age. So I'd like to understand what those early years were actually like, because I can't imagine it was all plain sailing, especially leading people older than you and being in a position where you were pretty early in your own career. So what was the reality of that like when you first made that transition? Look, I think uh, I had a perception of how the world worked, how corporate works, you know, and here's the challenge, right? Like as a sales guy, as an early sales guy, you only know what you know about your world, your book of business, your customers, like you have this view. And I remember this story where uh, there's two stories that stand out to me. One was, I remember saying to somebody about six months before I got into leadership, I remember saying, I'm only going to hire the best of the best. Because I remember looking around the sales floor and thinking like, ah, there's some people here that maybe aren't that great. And I was so naive and young to think at that point in time that like I was only going to hire these amazing people that were never going to need any help or support. Then I get into my first sales job, my first sales management job. And I remember making some hires. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like not everybody operates like me. Which is not to say that I was like, you know, the greatest ever, right? 
But I remember thinking to myself, wow, like I was so wrong in my view and my approach on just hiring talent and then the amount of nurture and support that they needed. And, you know, the things everybody needed was just different. And I learned early on, like, you have to be a coach, you have to be a mentor, you have to be a guide, you have to be a parent, you have to be a therapist. And that might, all those things might happen in like a 10 minute period, by the way, in the same one-on-one. So it was really a shocker to me, like early on to go, okay, all right, like I have to redirect my thinking. People need more support maybe than I thought. And I was so naive to think that they didn't. And then the other thing that really stood out to me was I remember seeing you know, people cry in the office. Like when I was right out of college and be like, why are people crying? Like, this is a place of business. Like we should be working. Like, where are these emotions? Like do your job. And I got into leadership and I realized, oh my gosh, like everybody's jobs are hard. I have to be there to support people. And the first person that had tears in my office, I remember just stopping and going, okay, it's not, you know, this hardcore corporate approach. Like, I need to get a box of Kleenex and I need to have it in my office because people are going to cry and I need to be there to support them. And so, you know, it's just like these little moments. They weren't these like big moments of like, you know, failure, if you will. There were these little learning moments along the way that like altered my mindset on kind of how I thought about helping support and lead people. And then, of course, sure, I made mistakes all along the way, too, of I'm sure things I've said, people I've hired, people I've developed. I mean, look, you're always learning. And I think that's the key thing is like, nobody can say, oh, I've always got it right from the beginning. No, absolutely not. Like I failed many times, but the key is learning through all those little mistakes. Like the thoughts that I had, the mindset that I had going into leadership changed as soon as these little moments started to hit and shape me. And the key thing I say to people is you have to have an open heart and open mind at all times because- you know, the way you see the world and view it today, it might be completely different than what reality is once it starts to hit. So go into stuff with an open mind, go into stuff with the idea that like, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And as long as you're always learning from those mistakes as you go, then you can go as far as you want. Where people really struggle is I think they get into a position where they think like, this is the right way. This is the only way I know the way that they become very hard headed in their approach because they're scared to death to fail. Whereas if you go into going, I know I'm going to fail, but I'm going to learn, then I think you're going to be in a much better place long-term. And I'm sure I have, you know, hundreds of stories of, you know, making mistakes along the way and changing my mindset and learning. And, but it's just part of the drill. You just have to be willing to go through that journey in all aspects of your career. It's such an important topic, isn't it, Scott? And and as you were talking through it, I felt like I could relate to a lot of what you were saying. And I know many other listeners too, right? Because making that transition to first-time leader, especially going from a high-performing individual contributor, your world changes overnight. And you think you know what it is. You think you know what it takes until you're actually there. And all of these preconceptions can be very different, right? And you make such a valuable point around the just getting comfortable around the premise of making mistakes and accepting that you're not going to know it all. Sometimes that aspect of vulnerability can make a big difference in terms of building trust with your team. Uh, When you're a first-time leader or early in your career, you're not going to be perfect, but that's absolutely okay. Um, Focusing on developing your talent leaning in wherever you can, taking things off of their plate and then building over time is absolutely the way to think about it and seeing every mistake, so to speak, as a, just a new learning opportunity and a growth opportunity. So really important topic there. 
Something I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on with that said, Scott, is that we can't run away from the fact that we work in a performance-driven space. And so we talk about building culture and developing talent and leaning in to understand people's personal and professional goals. But how do you balance that when you also have a big number over your head and other leaders in the business that expect you to over-deliver on that number? I think it always goes back to the fundamentals And it also goes back to transparency. You know, I mean, we have to find this balance as leaders. On one hand, we are, we're there to develop people. We're there to make them better. We're there to support them. We're there to give them all the tools that they need. With that comes the understanding that your team is going to come forward and perform and, and, you know, achieve all the metrics that you're asking them to achieve. So it's this two-way road that I always see in leadership, first of all. And early in my career, I used to say, you know, everything's built on trust and respect. I'm going to trust and respect that you're going to do the right thing. We're going to trust and respect each other along this journey to help support each other. If things go good, if things go bad. And so with that just becomes this balance of like, Hey, I'm here for anything you need, but I also believe that you're going to do your job to perform as well. Right. There's that, that two-way road with that also comes, you know, the importance of hiring the right talent. And, you know, where I see, I think so many, you know, teams and, and organizations go wrong is that sometimes you have the wrong people in the wrong seats. And by the way, it's also your job to either help develop those people into the right seats or to help them find the right career path for them. Because, you know, there's nothing worse than seeing somebody who's in a role that just isn't a fit for them and helping them to understand that that just might not be the right role is also the job of, of a leader. And that's one of the more challenging parts of your job as a leader as well. So I think it's this balance of, you know, one, coaching, developing, performance, understanding the KPIs as well. I've always said sales is a math problem. And, you know, understanding, you know, the the math from top to bottom and really knowing the KPIs that drive the business is crucial. And then on top of it, too, just having the right people in the right places. And, um, you know, look, my leadership style has never been geared around numbers, I'm not a guy who comes into an organization and says, okay, well, these are our numbers. This is what we have to hit. And you have to make X amount of calls and you have to do this and this and this. I lead purely from the standpoint of empowering my teams and empowering them to make decisions and putting the right development and support in place for them. In fact, I, in my sales meetings, we we don't really talk about numbers. You know, We'll talk quickly about the forecast. Hey, here, this is where we are. This is what we need to do. And then we move on. I don't dive into pipeline inspection and sales meetings. And one-on-ones are purely there to talk about what does somebody need to help their growth and development. I don't jump into numbers in one-on-ones. I really believe that the dashboards, whether it's Tableau or Salesforce or whatever else, those are there on the wall for everybody to see and understand the score of the game. But I don't need to tell everybody the score of the game because everybody knows. And then in return, my job is to make sure people are supported along the way to hit their number. So like I said, I've never been a leader that jumps into, you know, you need to do this or you need to do that. It's purely about supporting and developing people. And when you when you give that level of support and development to somebody, there's a, a little bit of a social contract that says, okay, Scott is trusting me. Scott is developing me. Scott wants me to be the best I can be. So in turn, I'm going to go perform for Scott and for the company. And people tend to kind of put themselves last in that equation because they don't want to let their leader down. They don't want to let the company down. And then, yeah, they want to make money and they want to do well. 
as opposed to when you have a leader who I think is cramming numbers down your throat and everything else that becomes about me, 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 and then I'm not going to work hard for that leader and the company's kind of last. So my pyramid has always been flipped on, support people, give them the development they need, empower them to make decisions, let them know you're there to really support them. And as a result of that, the numbers come by people knowing that they're supported and they're getting everything they need to be the best they can possibly be. And, you know, when I've run into leaders before, you know, in my organization or leaders I've worked for who operate, you know, very top down, very numbers driven, I adapt my style a little bit in those moments. But for the most part, you know, my feeling is you give people what they need, they'll go perform because they're adults and you treat them like adults and they're going to go perform like adults as well. So anyways, I can go on and on on that topic, but I'm a big believer that, you know, it really comes down to you put the right people in the right positions and everything happens as a result of that. Yeah, it is again a really fascinating topic once again, because the reality is, is I've seen some leaders just lead on the the numbers, the data, the analytics and have a lot of success. I've seen others operate the same way as you with success, but also both sides of that equation have yep. less success, you know, naturally subject to a, a number of different reasons. And so with the way that you go about this, you mentioned hiring the right talent and the development piece. So it begs the question for you, Scott, how do you go about identifying the right talent, especially because they really need a specific type of DNA to buy into that social contract that you talk about? So how do you go about identifying the right talent? Yeah, well, I think it starts all the way as early as just the job description itself, right? Like who are you attracting from the very beginning? Uh, but then it also comes down to making sure that the entire organization knows and understands what you stand for. You know, in, in one role that I had early on, uh, we were hiring uh, a profile that we ended up switching as time went on. And what we learned in the difference in those two profiles was a couple of things. One was compensation. Okay. How are we recruiting and finding the right people? Because compensation matters. But the other thing too was their backgrounds. Where did they come from? What organizations had they been in? What exposure had they had? You know, their knowledge base all of a sudden was different as a result of us looking for a little bit of a different profile. So, uh, you know, I think compensation is one, knowledge based experience is another. But also the other thing that's really important, and I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but the other thing that's really important too is as you go to bring people on board during the recruitment process, you have to be explaining to people what your culture is, you know, who your company is. Um, you have to be very transparent about your why. Because I think oftentimes we think of salespeople as being kind of plug and play. Like I can hire any salesperson, they're going to do well. But there are all different types of salespeople. There are salespeople that want to come in and just do their thing and they don't want to be bothered. And they're not going to contribute to your company culture. By the way, you can have some of those people. Then there are salespeople that are going to be good salespeople, not amazing, but they're going to be amazing culture people. And you have to find this kind of balance of people along the way because that's what makes up your organization. But I think it also starts on the job description. It starts on their recruiting conversations. It starts with outlining your culture and who you are and, and what you're looking for. Because I've seen a lot of people join organizations and be surprised by the way the culture is. I talk to people all the time who will say, I joined this company and, and, and nobody told me during their recruitment process it was X, Y, and Z. And I think as a leader, you have to be very candid to say, hey, this is how we operate. Like This is who we are and this is what has made us successful. And then let people make decisions if it's a fit for them or not. And you know, I, I think 
you know, that transparency starts from from day one. I used to do um, the onboarding conversations. You know, when we would bring people on in week one. When I was at Zillow, I would fly all over the country and show up for an hour for the onboarding sessions. We would hire these big, big classes of, of people. We hired up to you know 25, 30 at one point in time. But I would show up and I would give a speech for you know 30 minutes or so just to say, this is who we are. This is what we're looking for out of you. This is what you can expect out of us, but this is what we expect out of you. And there were times where I debated like, gosh, should I fly all the way to Atlanta from Seattle for an hour conversation? And at the end of the day, it really mattered. Like it mattered for people, one, to see me and understand how I thought. It mattered for me to explain to people what they could expect out of us. It mattered for people to know from day one kind of what the world was going to look like in, in working there. And we saw results out of hiring the right people, the right profile, the right background, being super transparent with what we wanted. And maybe the last component of that too is organizations sometimes don't know who they are or what they want to be at certain points in time. You know, are you this high growth company that, you know, is a little chaotic right now? Um, Are you a, you know, established 30 year old organization that just is looking for 5% growth year over year? That's a much different salesperson and onboarding process than, you know, the high growth, chaotic organization, right? Like, so knowing those things is really important as part of the conversation of who you're looking for, because if you bring on somebody who's been at Oracle for 10 years into your startup, you don't set the grounds for them coming in. It's going to be a disaster, right? Which is the same as you hire the startup person into Oracle that's going to be a disaster too without that like level setting of like who we are and what we're looking for. So I know I'm going a lot of directions here, but I think, you know, it starts from the beginning. It starts with transparency through the process and it starts as the organization really knowing who they are, what they're looking for and their why behind that as well. Like it's a lot like dating, like you have to know what you want and, you know, you have to go into it. You have to swipe the right direction, knowing exactly what you want. You can't just swipe on everybody. So anyways, that, that's my, my analogy always is dating when it comes to recruiting and hiring. I feel like I'm getting a good grip on the way you think about field talent. I'd love to just touch on also the way you think about hiring leaders, because if I was to categorize this conversation in two profiles, you've, you've got the empowerment-based leader, let's just say, and then you've got the analytical leader who, who lives more in the KPIs, the spreadsheets and beyond. And I'd love to know for you, when you think about hiring leaders, whether you feel there are circumstances where actually that analytical leader is someone you need on your team, or whether generally you're more focused on that empowerment-based style of leadership when you're hiring leaders for your team? It's a great question, Alex. And I think a lot of it too depends on where the organization is, your leadership talent, you're also surrounding them with. You know, If you have a team of six uh, sales leaders that are all reporting into you, you have to also take a look at your sales talent, under, your, your leadership talent to understand, well, first of all, who are my leaders that are going to take over my job? Because you always have to be grooming somebody to take over your role. Like The best thing you can do as a leader is work yourself out of a job because you've hired so many talented people around you that they're ready to take over immediately. But also like you can't have like, like I always look at a sales team, whether it's sales leaders or salespeople, and I always think of it like a baseball lineup. You know, I'm an American, so I'm going to use, you know, American baseball here as my analogy. In a baseball lineup from one to nine, hitter one to nine, 
you can't have everybody hitting home runs all the time, right? You can't have everybody hitting for singles. You can't have you know everybody who's just trying to get on base only. There has to be this balance in this blend, right? You know, you're a uh, you're a, you're a football guy, so you know you can't have uh, you know Ronaldo's only on the field, right, or on the pitch, I guess, as they say. So you have to have this balance of talent, and I think the key thing is is looking at your talent to say who do I have currently and what do I need. And maybe you need somebody that's a little more analytical to help up-level the rest of your leaders. Maybe um, the person who you're replacing was too far to the left on empowerment, and you need somebody a little more deeper in the data to run the team. Maybe you had somebody who wasn't operational, and you need somebody to kind of balance that out. So you know, who are you replacing, but also taking a look at your team to understand what are those gaps that you need, and then looking at the team that's going to report to them and say, what does this particular team need? Because if it's an enterprise sales team versus a S&B team versus an SDR team versus a, you know, whatever, you have to understand that leader that fits in there. The other component too is then really understanding where are we having gaps across the company that this person can also kind of help fill. So understanding that I think from top to bottom is really important, but also I I always go back to finding that balance between leaders that are going to support and empower their teams more on that side of the curve as opposed to the hardcore operational leaders. Because, you know, look, in my organization, I, I I can't be speaking a language that's completely different than also what my leaders are speaking. So I've noticed imbalances before where I'm up here at a high level saying, you know, we're here to support you. We're here to empower you. We're here to give you what you need. And then I have a leader that's hardcore writing people up for hitting target by 1% and their team is coming to me going, you're all speaking different languages. So finding that balance and kind of weaving the message on how we all speak together is really important. And again, it goes back to the transparency in the recruitment process. Like, hey, this is who I am. Is that what you want to work for? You know, tell me about you. Let's see if it's a fit for me. Now let me bring in your peers and let's see if you're a fit together. And look, I've made a lot of hiring mistakes in my career. Like, let me be very honest. Like, Hiring is the hardest thing that any leader will do. And I think the key thing is, is, you know, somebody early in my career said to me, hire fast, fire faster. And, you know, it's like, it's the difficult part of our job at the end of the day. But, um, you know, if you put somebody in the wrong role, it's your job to help support them to find the right one. I talked about that earlier, but also like you may be putting 10 salespeople in a challenging place by putting the wrong leader in that place. And I think that's the other component too, is like, you have to look at the team and go, hold on, did I make a mistake here? And when I have made those hiring mistakes, uh, I'm always very clear to tell the team and say, look, I made a mistake. I put the wrong leader in the role. And now I've cleaned that up. And now I'm going to go find you the right leader. Because I I think, you know, your job as a leader, if you're going to have this like support empowerment view if you put the wrong people in the wrong places, it falls on you at the end of the day. And you have to be just as quick to clean it up as you were to put that person in place. So that's a bigger topic. But uh, again, you have to be very honest with yourself to go, did I make the wrong decision or the right decision here? And usually you're the last person to know that you made the wrong decision because you fall in love with the people that you hire. And it's, you know, usually the people around them go, I'm not sure this person's going to work out. And all of a sudden you have to step back and go, okay, I made a mistake. Now I got to go do something about it. It's so important to leave the ego at the door in those types of scenarios, right? I, um, 
I, I always say there's this battle between emotion and logic. And whenever I'm making a logical decision, I'll sense check it against emotion. And whenever I'm making an emotive decision, I sense check it against logic. And, and you've got to be able to have that separation factor. And the other point is just as you were talking about the piecing the team together bit, bit. I often describe that as it's a bit like playing chess, right? You, you're trying to make the right move at the right time to create this, this groundswell amongst your team. And there's scenarios where you can only have balance when you have different people that have slightly different operating rhythm, but are all underpinned by the same principles. And I think what you're describing is that you are principle-based in the way that you generally go to market, but you accept that different leaders will have slightly different ways of operating in the field, but that diversity of perspective can actually be incredibly powerful to make sure that you've got the right people and the right places on the chessboard. So a couple of analogies I'll throw in the mix yeah. there as well. Yeah. By the way, Alex, I think you know the, the key thing is there is, again, going back to knowing that First of all, by the way, diversity is so crucial inside of an organization too. Diversity of you know background, experience, viewpoints, race, everything, right? And so I think that's another key component here too, right? We talk about like alignment to some degree of how we operate as a group, like, and that's really important. But also, that doesn't mean that you bring in a group of people that only look and walk and talk like you. I had this view early in my career where I said, you know, I said out loud and I still cringe at the fact that I even said it, but I said out loud and I said, I want to hire people that I want to go have a beer with. And looking back on that comment now, in fact, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I had this leader who looked at me and she said, well, Scott, that's great that you want to hire people that like, you know, you want to have fun with. But she said, you know, if you're not bringing diversity in the organization, you're going to end up with a bunch of Scots. And, you know, I remember her saying, she was like, you know, it's great that, you know, you want to have a bunch of Scots, but Scots will all think and walk and talk the same way. And I remember going, oh, wow, like that, I might've made a mistake on that. And so now I really try to look at, you know, where can I bring in all these different experiences? And what's been so great about working in the Middle East is we have 40 plus nationalities in the building. And so you have all these different backgrounds and experiences and working norms and the way people come into the organization, they view the world through the lens that they've seen and learned. And what that does is it allows us to say, okay, here's kind of the way we're going to go operate, but there may be offshoots of this based upon you know the experience that people have had. And so I'm just a firm believer of like, yes, okay, we have to have an operating path, but we also need to hire people that think completely different to challenge the norms of how we're doing stuff. Because if everybody just agrees with Scott, well, that's not going to be a good organization at the end of the day, because we're just going to go the same path and, and that might get pretty boring after a while. It's great to hear how you've evolved in that sense. And one of the themes I've noticed just throughout this so far is that you seem to have people in your life who either hold you accountable or, or sense check some of the things you say, just this premise of mentorship and accountability and great people that are willing to challenge you seems like it's been one of the key components to actually your success in you being able to grow and scale. So just an important point for people to take note of as they continue to listen. Now, Scott, you brought up being in Dubai and having this exposure to faulty nationality. So we've got to hear the story as to how all of this came about and what your 
early impressions of, of life in Dubai uh, has been like? I think first and foremost, I'll say I never anticipated working in the Middle East. So I just like start there with that conversation. I never anticipated living and working abroad. So it's amazing what happens when you kind of have this open heart and open mind on your career in the world, because you never know what's going to come your way. But the group I was in at Zillow was a product called Zillow Offers. Zillow Offers was an iBuying program where we had you know, grown at a, a, an insane rate. We hired thousands of people to, to, to build this business. And it was the, the most fun I probably had in my career. But at the end of 2021, the company decided to shut down Zillow Offers and return back to the core operating model of the, of the business. And I was kind of in this position where I, I had a chance to stay with the company. They asked me to you know, kind of build the next thing. And so I was in a, a good position. Uh, but I felt like after spending the last couple of years building this business, that my heart and soul had kind of been ripped out from me. Like it was like, you know, putting all your effort into building a house to see it just get completely demolished. Right. So at that same time, I was presented with an opportunity to have a phone call with Property Finder. And I looked at the note and I remember thinking, you know, the Dubai, like, I don't know if Dubai is, you know, on our roadmap as a family, but I had a phone call with them. And I had a second phone call with him. And I was in this position where I kind of thought, you know, I think I need a reset. And it, I've often said, like, I think Property Finder was looking for, you know, they were looking for me. They were looking for my experience. They're looking for my skill set. And I was looking for kind of the next thing to some degree because I felt like I needed this, like, new lease on my career to some degree. And so, you know, I kept having conversations. The next thing you know, went to Dubai, went to check it out, met with the people and said, hey, let's go do this. And, you know, thankfully I have an amazing supportive family who, you know, went on that, who has gone on this journey as well, you know, moving from, you know, Seattle to Dubai, it's 8,000 miles, it's 12 time zones away. You know, it, it's a massive change. But I think the key thing there is, is like, even though I never saw this in my career, what I did see was an opportunity. And what I did see was a chance to you know, level my career up and get some experience where I otherwise wouldn't have. And if I hadn't have had that open mind and I would have just hit you know, decline on that note, I never would have been in this position to gain this experience. So that's the first thing I think about. And the second thing I think about is your career is this like living, breathing organism. Like you may see yourself heading down this path that like you're going to be on forever. Maybe you think you're going to be in, you know, finance or engineering or whatever it is for your entire career. But all of a sudden things can take a U-turn and it could take a U-turn based on company decisions, leaders you're presented with, people you surround yourself with, the macroeconomic outlook, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's an economic downturn, like these things are going to like be bullets coming at you in your career. And some of them you'll dodge and some of them you won't. And as a result of that, it causes you to kind of change your views and opinions. Like I thought I was going to be in the media business my entire career. And then one day after 10 years, I said, it's time to do something different. I never saw myself in real estate. Then all of a sudden I ended up in real estate. I never saw myself in the Middle East. All of a sudden I ended up in the Middle East. So you never know where you're going to be. But I think as long as you're always listening with this open heart and open mind, you kind of see the next thing present itself based upon the fact that you have this, this belief that like, hey, I can kind of go do anything. And then the follow-up to that is surrounding yourself with people who are going to help support you, encourage you, 
mentor you, hold you accountable, as you said. And when those Dubai conversations started happening, you know, first and foremost, my family was at the forefront of it, my wife and my 12-year-old son. And, you know, I couldn't have done any of it without them. But also I had these mentors in my life who I went to and I said, hey, what do you think? And they said, why not? Why would you not do it? What an amazing experience and opportunity. So you might be looking at something going, oh, that's really scary. I don't know if that's for me. What if I fail? And other people in your life are going to be looking at you going, well, why would you turn this down? Why would you miss out on such an opportunity? Uh, And just like early in my career where I didn't think sales was for me, but somebody said to me, Scott, you need to be in sales. And I said, oh, maybe you're right. And that kicked off my career. The same kind of goes as like, you just never know where you're going to end up, but putting the right people around you to help you make those decisions, I think is crucial. So look, it's been an amazing experience. I'm incredibly grateful for you know everybody who's been a part of the journey. I am not the leader that I showed up as like, you know, 18 months ago, I'm a completely different version of myself. And it's really been nothing short of amazing to, to be a part of this journey with an amazing company with great people and to surround myself in an environment that I never saw myself being in. So anyways, I can go on for days on that, but I think the key thing is, is you know, having this growth mindset is really the, the, the right way to go about your career. One of the things that stuck out in my mind as you were talking through that, Scott, is the fact that in a way your career feels opportunistic in a certain regard where you have done the work, you, you've performed, you've delivered, and these opportunities have seemingly found their way to you in some capacity. And then you've been, uh, you've opened yourself up to grab it with two hands. But we're, we're in a, a market where I'd say there's kind of mixed advice in the sense that I hear some people say, you should design your career from A to Z, right? You should say, I want to be in this role by this timeline. You should walk into a business and say, this is what I want from day one. How do I get there? And so just to those who are listening out there who would say, well, Scott, do I design my career and be super intentional about it from day one versus do I just do what Scott did, right? Perform, keep myself open. What what would you encourage that person to do or consider? First of all, I think it always starts with a foundation of knowing what motivates you. Like, what are you driven by? And, you know, for me, thankfully, I was put in a position where I learned that sales and people and making an impact on people and helping develop them and grow them. That was my foundation. And everything I've done goes back to that foundation. So I think, you know, first of all, starting with what are your motivations? What are your passions? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Because, you know, there's that saying, I guess, you know, find find what you love doing and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that that really holds up as the foundational point. You can't go try to be something that you're not or someone that you're not. So I think that's the starting point is like, what's my foundation and my base? Then I think from there, it flows into being opportunistic is really important, along with a sense of planning. And part of that goes to writing down your goals and understanding where you want to go. Because one thing might say, okay, I want to be a sales leader. I want to be a VP of sales. And I'm starting out right now as an SDR. Okay, great. You found your kind of career path. But now, though, it comes to perform, be opportunistic as opportunities are presented to you. Like I always say to people, like, say yes to opportunities because you never know where it's going to take you. Say yes to that project that nobody wants to take on. Say yes to that program that everybody thinks is a disaster and go make it amazing because these things give you a platform. 
right? And these things give you an opportunity to be seen. Then the opportunistic part comes. Like I got the chance to go build the 400 person sales team for Zillow offers from scratch because for one, I had said yes to taking on an additional region at Zillow. So I was leading one region. They asked me to take on a second one. I said, absolutely. I didn't ask about money, title, anything else. I just said, yep, let's do it. And seven, eight months later, after you know finding some success with that second region, running two of them at a time, I got a chance to build Zillow offers. And when I was asked to do that, the sales team, to, to build the sales team for that, I said, yes. I didn't ask about money and title and what's in it for me. I just said, yep, that sounds great. Let's go do it. It sounds amazing because I trust the people around me. And then when Dubai came along, it was like, you know, well, I'm kind of at this interesting point and I still want to be in sales. I still want to lead you know, people. I want to be a VP. I want to do all these things. So the foundation is that. But wait a minute, I'm being presented with an opportunity. Why would I say no to such a unique opportunity? Right. So I think again, it's this mindset to be able to do it. And by the way, I'll close though with saying that, you know, look, I, I recognize that I have I, I've been very privileged to be able to say yes to these things. And I think that's the other part of it too, is yes, I've been presented with some opportunities, but and I yes, I've worked my tail off to get here. But at the same time, though, that privilege of being presented with these opportunities and being put in this position is one that I take very seriously as well. Like not everybody has been able to be in that place. And so I think one is, you know, working hard to be able to get there is one thing. But also, look, the world is built in a way that some people are given some opportunities over others. So my job today is to help others get opportunities they maybe wouldn't have gotten. Uh, and that's, I think, why I'm so serious about helping grow and develop people and, and giving back because I know not everybody has access to the same things that everybody else might have at the same time. So Anyways, there's a lot that goes into that, but opportunistic, I think, is really important in your career because you never know where you're going to end up at, and you may end up in a, in a position three spots down the line that you never saw if you weren't saying yes 10 years ago. It's really, really well said, you know, and especially when you do great work, you build IP within the space, and when I say IP, it's brand equity, right? You start to build a name within the space where you keep performing, you keep doing the right things, you keep leading through, you know, empowering people and beyond. And uh, you will find the opportunities come knocking and you've just got to be ready to to say yes, as, as you've just said there, Scott, and, and grab them with two hands. So I'm really enjoying the conversation. Last couple of bits here. One is that you've been in a position now at least twice where you've had to land in a role and build a team or build a region or a function pretty much from scratch. And so as you think about the, the first 90 days where you've had to do that at either a Zillow or Property Finder or otherwise, what are some of the principles or core go-to-market strategies that you just carry in your mind that at that point that you land really underpin your, your initial 90 days? So I think the first thing is, is really understanding the people that are already on the journey, understanding what's been done, understanding what needs to be done. If you ever really want to know what to go do, sit down and talk to the people in the organization and just start asking those questions. Like so many times I've seen leaders come on in with their agenda and they just bulldoze right past everybody. And they say, this is the way we're going to do it because this is the way I've done it for the last however many years. And what that does is everybody instantly then just goes, oh, great. Like I got to get on this guy's bus, right? As opposed to us all being on the same bus together. So I think first of all, is really getting that buy-in from people. 
and really getting that buy-in to understand like, where should we go? How should we handle this? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Uh, where have we failed in the past? And oftentimes, like you can understand the right ways to go just as a result of that conversation. The other thing too is the customers. You know, I've been very fortunate in my career to get very close to customers to understand what works, what doesn't work. One of the things that Property Finder, you know, that we've done is we've we've really taken time to understand the customer needs. You know, what are we not doing? What do we need to do? The customers will tell you the right path to go because they're paying for the services. So they know usually what the right thing is to offer and not. And even when we were in doing, you know, doing B2C stuff at Zillow, we used to bring customers in and talk to them about the sales process that we were providing, what's working, what's not working. So those are the first core things that I think about. Then from there, it's about getting that buy-in on the narrative in the past. And one of the things that I have always done is um, I like to write and I like to write the story of where we're going to go. And then you can take that document and you can share it with everybody in your organization and people can read it and really get in your head to say, okay, I see where Scott wants to go, or I see where we might go as an organization. Now, people can choose to say, that's right, I believe it, let's do it, um, or no, and here's why, and I'll debate this. And then once you have that buy-in together as a group, then you start down that path. But I think it's really about this collective approach. Like I, I very much have this mentality of like, we're all in it together. And then the other thing is too, is stakeholders. You know, who are your partners? Who are the, is it product? Is it marketing? Is it engineering? Is it finance, legal, HR? What are these teams that you need to also have involved? Because you can't just say, okay, well, sales is going to go make it happen, right? Sales needs the support of marketing, needs the support of product, needs the support of finance. I might change the compensation plan. I need the support of HR. I might, you know, try to pay more money to my salespeople. I might do all these different things. So this collective approach is really important. And then once you've got that buy-in, you can go really fast. I'm a leader that says, I'd rather go slow in the beginning to go really fast and far long-term, as opposed to I've seen leaders come in and they go really fast in the beginning. They burn people out. People don't want to be a part of that organization anymore and they leave. And I'll go the sustainable route to go a little slower in the beginning to go further long-term. So I think that buy-in becomes so important with the people around you. I love that point around really go slow to go fast. It's a bit of a win the marathon and not just the sprint type of mentality. So that's awesome. Scott, I've got one final question for you. And that's to all of the sales leaders listening and aspirational sales leaders listening as well. What's the single best piece of advice that you'd like to share with the audience? There's one that um, really sticks out to me which came from our chief of HR when I was at Zillow. His name is Dan Spaulding. And I sat down with Dan early on when we were doing the Zillow offers, you know, business. And uh, we were growing incredibly fast. I had hired like, you know, 150 people and something crazy, like, you know, five months or something. It was just this, this insane journey we were on. And Dan said to me something that has just stuck with me ever since. And this has probably been five years now since he said it. But what he said to me was, don't be afraid to sit in the fire. And when he said it, I didn't quite get it, but it started resonating with me as time went on. And what he meant was like, things are going to break. Things are going to be painful. The journey is going to be hard. You're going to run into these moments that you're going to want to pull your hair out. And as a leader, we want to jump in and fix things right away. Like, let me go solve this. Let me solve that. I want to make sure this is working. But when we do that, we don't tend to feel the burn. We don't tend to feel the pain. And we don't tend to then understand where the fire started or the why behind that fire. So we're so quick to solve, solve, solve. 
we don't understand, you know, really the the root of the cause to some degree. And so that's been something that's really stuck with me is like, in fact, I get goosebumps, you know, talking about it because so often I see leaders have, you know, struggles hit them and they want to like fix it right away and move on. And I always say to them, hey, hold on a second. Like, let's feel this a little bit. What's going on? Why did it start? How, how do we prevent it in the future? Don't be afraid to let it burn for another couple of days. Like some things like you have to extinguish right away, but other things it's like, look, it's okay to feel this burn and let's make a solve that is sustainable long-term rather than just putting a bandaid over it because that fire might start up again, you know, in another day or two. So that advice to me has been something that's been so powerful in my career uh, over the last five years is don't be afraid to sit in the fire. And I share that with a lot of early leaders because they're the first ones who want to fix, fix, fix. Um, and again, you have to fix, but if we don't understand that root cause and really feel that pain, then that fire might pop up again very quickly after. And you certainly don't want that to happen. That's a, a mic drop moment right there, Scott. <laughs> have you enjoyed being on? I've loved it. I could be out here for another couple of hours with you, Alex. So thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. I absolutely agree. To, to everyone listening, hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please be sure to like, comment, share and subscribe no matter where you're listening to this. And we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.